0: Welcome to Season 4 of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a parent coach, and an author.
1: And I'm a daughter and a kick-ass high school
0: student. Each week, we'll discuss a different parenting topic.
1: And we'll interview some amazing
0: guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting informational resource for busy parents.
1: While also offering the perspective of a teen.
0: Stay tuned, everyone. Boom. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. And we have a guest expert today. And this show is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. We have a guest expert who is coming back for the second time. She was originally a guest almost exactly one year ago in February of 2021. Her name's B. Cote. And when she was here last time, we talked about domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, factors related to that, how parents could set the stage in their home to protect against that. And I'm having her come back today and we want to discuss something very specific with you. We, meaning B and I, have bonded recently over our shared knowledge of something called the post-separation abuse wheel. And we talked about this concept in a general way when we met last time. And we both came across this, I guess it's a resource. And it was created by an organization called One Mom's Battle. And it is an organization designed to support parents, particularly mothers who are going through a divorce or separation with a high conflict partner. Oftentimes that partner has characteristics of narcissism and there's a lot of just abuse going on and stress and very heightened custody battles. And she created, Tina Swithin is the is the founder of that organization, but she created this post-separation abuse wheel. And with it, there is eight different categories or eight different characteristics that can be found in abusive relationships as parents are separating and starting the process of undergoing divorce. So we're going to talk about those, but we're also going to talk about them in context of that Netflix mini-series called Made, M-A-I-D. And Made is a miniseries that's based on Stephanie Land's memoir called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive. And the show is inspired by her story. So it's not, there isn't a direct translation between the book that she wrote, that Stephanie Land wrote, and the show that was created. However, we wanted to bring attention to some of the variables that we saw really well done and realistically portrayed in this show and relate it back to some of these characteristics that can be seen on the post separation abuse wheel. So if you haven't seen the show and you're dying to see it, and I do encourage you to watch it, we are going to have some spoilers in here. So just kind of keep that in mind. But if you've seen it, and you've planned to see it and you are okay with us talking about some of the finer details of the program, tune in because I think it's really relevant to some of the discussions we've had on this podcast in the past. Okay. So let me reintroduce B. Cote. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's the founder and director of a program called Impact LLC, which is a program designed to support abusers in their process of developing healthy patterns, you know, ending that cycle of abuse. And then she also has an additional nonprofit organization called step up to family safety. And like I said, she's been on the show before. She's fantastic. I think that her show is one of the the episodes that we've received the most attention for. So I'm very pleased to be that you're back to talk with us today. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me back, and and I'm just really excited about this topic. I think we wanted to come on and talk about this show, made, but then we kind of, I called Tara and said, you know, I'm really focusing on this post-separation abuse wheel. In working with abusers, I have run into a lot of legal abuse, or sometimes it's being called litigation abuse, where abusers are further abusing post-separation by using the court system to harm their victim. And oftentimes the victim has not experienced physical violence at their hands. And so they're just wondering what the heck is going on. And all of that attention to that topic brought me back to something that I often point out when I train on domestic violence, and that is how dangerous leaving A domestic violence situation can be. And I think I talked about some statistics last time, and and I want to put those back out there, some really important facts. And that is that almost all domestic violence murders happen because a victim is leaving, has left, or won't return. And so for us to put pressure on victims to leave or to make their lives more difficult because they do leave pushes them back to their abuser in very many cases and puts them at risk. So. I thought about, well, you know, we were going to talk about this show made, right? And I said, well, how about focusing on what the whole show focuses on, which is what happens to her after she leaves? And we don't pay a lot of attention to that. And so I think that delving into that a little bit, tying that together with post-separation abuse, I think is going to be really helpful for people to acknowledge. But I do want to say one thing about the, the show that I think has been a gift to the whole community, and that is by demonstrating how abuse isn't always criminal and isn't always physical, And I think that that has really brought attention to all of the many, many, many kinds of abuse that doesn't come to the attention of the courts and the legal system. And therefore, victims don't know that they're victims necessarily, and abusers don't know they're abusing necessarily. So I just wanted to put that out there at the front.
0: I think too, is sometimes when we hear of a woman leaving their partner, and I've heard even therapists say well she finally kicked him out or she finally found a new place to live and they sort of assume that now the parent she's good now right she's good now like now she's flipped into the healing portion because she's out of that circumstance when in reality there is a whole barrage of abuse that continues in her life so she's still actively in crisis even if she's not coming home from work and getting verbally abused by a partner who's living in the same home. And I think that is something that many of us don't recognize. And so this really highlights that. And the mini-series does too. I want to mention that I just kind of want to put some context around the characters. So as our listeners are listening, they can just know who we're talking about. So in the series... And I hope I pronounce her name right, but her her name is Margaret Qualley, and she plays the character of Alex, and that's the main character who is the mother, the mother of Maddie, who's a little girl who's two turning three, and then her abusive partner is Sean, and he is played by Nick Robinson. So he was in
1: Love Simon.
0: He was in Love Simon. He was in Melissa and Joey. He was in Jurassic World. Really great actor. The little girl is played by a young girl named Riley Whitted. And then there's several other characters, but other characters of note I want to mention is Andy McDowell plays Paula, who is Alex's mom, and she's actually her mom in real life.
2: Right. She's also local to our area. She's from uh, Gaffney. Oh, Gaffney, the peachoid.
0: <laughs> oh, Gaffney, that makes more sense. Okay,
2: South Carolina, right?
0: Yes. So she, Andy McDowell, is wonderful in this movie, playing this very chaotic mentally ill, high-strung woman who is not who's not stable and hasn't been able to provide her daughter with a stable upbringing. So Alex has this you know kind of caretaking, equally loving and like just exhausting relationship with her mom.
2: Oh, she absolutely is. and so yeah, so then Alex becomes you know both a caretaker for her mom in many ways and a caretaker for her daughter. so she's having to handle all these roles
0: hmm. And then Alex has a biological father whose name is Hank in the show, and he's played by Billy Burke. And Billy Burke is the actor who plays Bella Swan's father in Twilight. Um, oh. Yeah. And yeah, so I he. Know him yeah. He was familiar to me, and I looked him up and I was like, oh, of course, that's how, because he's such a likable, loving guy in Twilight. You know, in this show, you see him where he is also an individual in Alex's past who was very abusive and continues to be in his own way. It's different now, but there's definitely some scenes that kind of bring that to light. So I I look forward to talking about that. So I wanted to put that into context for our listeners. Alex is the main character and her daughter is Maddie. So we're going to talk about that.
2: And Maddie is, uh, how old is she? Two or three?
0: She turn, She's two at the beginning and then she has her birthday party and she turns okay. three. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get started. So I want to talk about the post-separation abuse wheel. Imagine, you know, my audience out there looking at, you know, a, a pie. The pieces of pie are the different sections we're going to talk about. And there's eight pieces of pie. And I do want to let you know, you can reference this post-separation abuse wheel at OneMomsBattle.com. And when you go to that website, I believe you click on resources and it's right there. And it's a very powerful tool. So if you are sitting in front of a computer right now, Or you can look this up on your phone. Please do, because it will help you with this discussion.
2: And I'd also like to say, Tara, that the the wheel is based on the original power and control wheel that was developed out of Duluth, Minnesota, and it was uh, developed by survivors of domestic violence. And there is a wheel for every demographic. If the audience out there wants to find a wheel for their faith, or if they're LGBTQ, or if they speak another language, they can just Google the power and control wheels and find what we're talking about, the basic power and control wheels. But this one is a different kind of wheel, and it is the post-separation abuse wheel
0: after we talked about this the other day, I laminated one because I knew I was going to oh, ha- want to keep it pristine to be able to show to clients. Cause I do work with a lot of parents who are post-separation and really struggling with some of these issues. So my plan is to just start at the top and kind of go clockwise around. And so the first component that I want to discuss, and it's labeled alienation allegations and if you are a person who's going through a separation and you are expressing concerns about your safety, your child's safety, physical, emotional, sexual, and oftentimes, if especially if there isn't really hard data, right, like there isn't police reports and all sorts of witnesses and things like that, the parent who is protesting their child's interactive, their child's interaction with this abusive parent is called an alienating parent, a parent who is participating in parental alienation, which means that you are sort of falsely planting negative perceptions in your child's mind so that they will reject the other parent unfairly and without merit. So I hear this, this is something, a term that's bandied about very, very quickly whenever kids start to show stress about being with their other parent.
2: And in the domestic violence world, what we call those are protective parents,
0: mm-hmm.
2: not alienating parents.
0: Right. And here they refer to it as the safe parent. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: if you are the safe parent and you're expressing, oh, well, my child is crying and doesn't want to go to their dad's, this is what they came home and said this about their dad, you know, that other parent and their lawyer typically will cry parental alienation. And so they'll start to to try to discredit them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to refer in this conversation as the safe parent as the mom and the abusing parent as the dad. And so if that's how it's presented in the show, that's how B and I typically see this. So. And it's statistically accurate. And it's statistically accurate. So if you're a dad out there listening and you're thinking, well, that's not me, I'm the safe parent, you know, like just understand that, we're going to be constructing we're talking this about
2: the show made right yeah.
0: now. Yeah.
2: Also, I want to point out that uh, parental alienation and parental alienation syndrome are two different things. There is no such parental alienation syndrome in the literature. It is not a mental illness. And so whether somebody purposefully alienates their children from uh, the other parent, that is a behavior, but not a mental health problem. And I just want to put that out there.
0: Wonderful. That's really important to note. Now, when we think back to the show, I'm trying to recall, because it certainly doesn't jump out at me, as Alex, the mom being accused of parental alienation extensively except for that period of time where she went to court. Yes. So she the the show starts off with her leaving Sean. She's grabbing her kids out of her kids bed, she's putting her in the car, she's kind of racing out of the yard in the dead of the night.
2: While he's passed out, I think.
0: Mhm. So earlier that night he had been intoxicated, he had been raging, he had thrown objects at the wall and glass had sprayed all over. And, you know, you see her being very fearful. She's, you know, pulling glass out of her daughter's hair and enough was enough. So that first scene is her leaving. And he does come running out into the yard, kind of screaming after her. And, you know, she, she does escape. And then after a bit of time, you know, she goes to a safe place and he starts going after her legally and saying, you took my child from me it's really unfair, like I'm her father, I have rights too. And he goes to get custody from her pretty quickly in like a, the form of an emergency hearing. So his lawyer is contending, you know, that she's just unfairly taking the girl from from her father. But I don't feel like that's a big focus in the show.
2: No, I don't think it is. I, and I think it's, a, it's kind of a a desperate, like, reaction to her leaving. And I don't know if it was encouraged by other people around him, but it sounds like it may have been.
0: His parents were very supportive. They came to the courthouse. They presented very well as far as having nice clothes on. And she was coming from a shelter and she's just wearing jeans and sneakers and, you know, just a little sweater or whatever. Like, she doesn't look put together and and, and presented as nicely as they do. And
2: throughout the show, her mother is presented as an obstacle, never as somebody who's an appropriate caregiver, the little girl. Right. So, you know, she can't count on her and nobody else is saying, you know, why don't we let your mom keep her?
0: Yeah, that's right. Anna, do you have any questions about what parental alienation is? I don't think so. Okay. I think this one isn't as relevant as some of the other sections of this post separation wheel. So I'm going to move on to the second one, which is neglectful or abusive parenting. And so this is when the unsafe parent, the abusive parent, will place their own needs above the needs of the child. They will expose their children to unsafe content, situations, people, you know, and they're doing this and it's creating a lot of fear in the mind of the safe parent, you know, constantly being worried that their children are in danger when they're with the unsafe parent, the abusive parent, sometimes they're using violence or intimidation or threats, manipulation, ridicule to gain compliance from the children. So I definitely see this happen often in my experience with working with kids.
2: Yes, and I have a really good example of of how this can play out and I think I can talk about this because it's it was somewhere else many years ago. But the father when he had the children for visitation would take their seat belts off on the drive home and drive 100 miles an hour so that by the time he delivered the children back home they were terrified and there was nothing the mother could do about it.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's not an example that I was thinking of. I was thinking more, I hear, and this is from colleagues in the years I've been doing this, where a dad might say to the kids, you know, when you just say that you're not going to come to my house, you are getting your mom in trouble. She's supposed to have you come with me and I'm supposed to be able to see you. And when you don't come and mom doesn't have you come, she's probably going to get in trouble by the police and get arrested. And you might never see her again.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: So and then kids are afraid to speak up and tell mom that they're worried about going to dad's because now they're in a protective mode of their mom.
1: Right. So did the dad in the show do that? I mean, the daughter was pretty little.
0: Well, he definitely exposed her to unsafe conditions. After that initial stage where he went to court, he did win custody time with the daughter. And actually, mom only had visitation with the daughter and he sort of got the daughter back for a lot more time. And so then they started sort of being forced to co-parent where they're passing the daughter back and forth. And it's established really early on in the series that he is an alcoholic and he tells her, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be sober and he starts going to meetings and his father-in-law, Alex, her, her biological father also has a history of substance abuse And so he's supposedly like supporting Sean as he's trying to get sober. So, you know, the series goes on and you're initially like, oh, you know, Sean's doing it like he's staying sober. He's engaged parent. It's very clear he doesn't have the same sense of caretaking over the girl that the mom does, because like if they both have to work, he's kind of like you have to deal with it.
2: She's the baseline parent. You know, yeah, she's she's the one when he and he's a bartender, by the way, which is interesting, him trying to get sober and, you know, and yet working in a bar, which also isn't a great environment for the little girl. And so, yeah. And so she mom is the backup parent. Alex is the one, you know, that has always taken care of this child. So he doesn't know what to do when he gets in a position where he has to go to work.
0: Yeah. So there's a scene, though where he does go back to using alcohol and he has visitation with the daughter and he goes to the park with her and he's intoxicated and he ends up kind of screaming at the girl. She's crying and hysterical and her mother, Alex's mother, the unstable mother, is there like kind of supervising and she ends up bringing Maddie back to the mom. And she talks to Sean and he says like, I lost it. Like I I was yelling at her. And he clearly has a sense of a awareness and regret that he had was not acting like the ideal father that he had professed to be. So that's a real vulnerable moment for him. And it's it is a game changer because he recognizes that his alcohol use is contributing to his inability to parent, which is not common. Like I felt like that was one of the less realistic
2: it was. And not only that, but what's also unrealistic is that nobody ever addresses his abuse of her separate from the drinking. And alcoholism and drinking don't cause domestic violence, but that's the way it's treated throughout this series, is that if he were sober, then he probably wouldn't be abusive. And that's just not uh, not real. What we find is that when a, a an alcoholic abuser stops drinking and doesn't address the abuse. What we have is a sober abuser.
0: Hmm. That's a good way to describe it. And he, you know, when I watched the show and he gets sober and he is so much nicer, you know, and like her mom was really struggling with like a mental health episode and she's in the hospital and he's right there with Alex, super supportive you know, helping at one point mom leaves and they're looking for her and he's super like nurturing and helpful and staying up in the hospital all night with her. And you're like, wow, you know, I could see the charm in him. I could see
2: Oh, absolutely. And and we understand why Alex fell in love with him in the first place. And that's the way it is with most of these guys. They're not monsters most of the time. Most of the time, they're wonderful people. And what victims are always trying to return to is that person they fell in love with. And they think he's there somewhere if they can just do things differently to bring that person back. What they don't realize is that what they've got now is what they've got. That's who he is now. But victims will often live in the past and want that man back that they fell in love with. And he's not there anymore. But we see glimpses of him. We see glimpses with Sean where he was once a fun, loving partner. Now, the first sign I saw was his anger upon learning of her pregnancy. Mm. Do you remember that?
0: I do now that you're was saying not
2: it. Not happy that she was pregnant. In fact, he demanded that she have an abortion and she refused. And uh, so it, it became clear to me that at that point that he's very self-centered and that the relationship was fine as long as he was getting what he wanted out of it. And with a baby coming along, it doesn't mean he didn't love the little girl, right? But what it does mean is that she interfered in the lifestyle that he thought he was going to continue to have.
0: Well, the lack of control you have when a baby comes on the scene and your partner, you know, the mom is now super focused on taking care of that baby and not being as attentive and kind of at his beck and call.
2: Mm -hmm. And there's some jealousy there, too.
0: Yeah, some competitiveness. And you wonder, would Alex have left him if she hadn't had the child to care for?
2: Very often, that is the last line in the sand before a, uh, a victim leaves an abusive situation is when she fears for the safety of her child. But now there are many, many times when children are at risk when they're being exposed to domestic violence, but a victim doesn't see it because he, the abuser, the dad has not physically harmed the children directly. And so they don't realize the amount of harm that witnessing the domestic violence, witnessing their mother being abused can have on the children. And it's pretty bad. It's it's pretty extreme. If um, you know, if our readers, our listeners are are familiar with the ACEs. Mm-hmm the adverse childhood experiences scale, one of the 10 factors there of, you know, whether or not somebody may suffer the consequences of having um, been exposed to abuse or neglect as children, one of the 10 factors is domestic violence, being exposed to domestic violence. So I think that that Alex did a great job of picking up that child and running. We don't know what she was exposed to before. We don't know what he had done before, but it was It wasn't until she, Alex, feared for Maddie's safety that she fled. And I just want to make abusers aware that their behavior can be detrimental and will likely be detrimental to the children, even if they never physically harm them.
0: Well, to understand that it actually changes how your child's brain develops. Absolutely like to use sort of a uh, basic language like you're you can create an issue where your your child's brain like has brain damage because it's not being allowed to develop in the way that is most healthy for the child and if they've been exposed to this and it impacts you know their neural pathways and how their brain develops like you're talking about not just okay this impact here and now but their entire future too mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's really important to recognize also as the parent, like one of the things I want to piggyback on what you said, B was, do you remember when she goes to her dad's home, her biological dad's home, who's now he's, he's divorced her mom. He's remarried. Yeah. He has, he's, he's like super religious. He's found, you know, he's found God and she goes into his kitchen and she kind of has, I don't know if it's a memory, but she basically asked the dad, like, have I ever been in this cabinet or did there used to be a cabinet here? And she kind of flashes back to a scene when she was a kid where her mom and dad were fighting and Alex had crawled into the cabinet.
2: He hid there
0: yes. to hide and her mom, she has a distinct memory of her mom pulling her out of the cabinet and then leaving the home. So then way later in the series, Alex does end up going back to Sean for a period of time you know, she slowly gets more isolated, more depressed. He starts cutting off her access to her cell phone, her car, her ability to earn a living. And there's a scene get, that gets explosive and she goes over and she can't find Maddie at first. And she opens up a cabinet and there's Maddie.
2: She has a flashback then. and And I think that that also led her to understand why she still didn't trust her father, just despite the fact that he's now, you know, doing what he needs to do and now a good man. What it is, is she doesn't trust him because he never took responsibility for that.
0: That is so key. How do you trust somebody? Some of the kids that I work with who have parents who've been abusive and we're doing work to try to get them to a place of healing and whether it's healing and recognizing like this is a person that can, that you're not safe with and you know you need to 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 create a life apart from this person or there isn't enough proof that warrants that child not having custody time with the child right or that that parent and that you know hasn't been extricated from that child's life and the reality is they're going to be spending time with that parent my goal of like teaching the parent better parenting tools, you know, having the kids be able to advocate for themselves. And I just see that these kids, they know when their dad won't admit what they did. They'll hear the dad say, you know, I didn't do, even if they don't like completely gaslight them, even if they're like, I don't remember it that way. Or, you know, like that was me trying to discipline.
2: Your mommy blows things out of proportion. And so what you have then is a kid who's doubting their own reality. And that's really unhealthy and harmful.
0: Yeah. I have a past client from a couple of years ago where they, the dad said, oh yeah, I was a different parent a couple of years ago. I was misusing alcohol. I was, I had explosive temper. Like, you know, it definitely impacted my relationship with my kids and I'm so much like I've Gone through treatment, and I have created a very different life for myself. But he really acknowledges how difficult it was for the kids, and how it had a long-term impact on their relationship. And these kids are so much more um, compared to my other clients, right? Who's whose parents don't admit the role they had. They are so much better adjusted, you know. Now that they're in in a world of true post-abuse, where that door seems to have closed on their life, that section of their life versus a kid who doesn't have a dad, who recognizes it, takes accountability, makes amends, acknowledges the the pain and the hurt. And they're just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop on another day.
2: Well, and I think, uh, is it Lundy Bancroft? For your your listeners, Lundy Bancroft is is an excellent author on the topic of domestic violence, particularly abusers as parents. And he's written books, in fact, called The Abuser as Parent. Um, And is it him who says that really the worst thing that an abuser does to a a child is abusing the child's mother? And by doing so, he interrupts and, and disrupts the mother-child bond, which is so important to the child's development. And one example would be if he discounts the abuse of the mother and makes her look crazy or makes her look weak, then you've got a child who's got a parent who's presenting as strong, who presents the other parent as weak. How do you deal with that in your head? or you've got a, a let's say a father who won't let the mother nurture and comfort a child after he's been hurt. Mm. That disrupts that bond, right? And is so important, but it causes so much confusion with the with the child because the child's never been hit.
0: I think of in the show made where we see a lot of scenes of Alex, you know, she she is often carrying Maddie. They often sleep in the same bed. Yes. There's just a lot of physical touch, you know, nurturing touch between them. And there's sometimes it's kind of hard to tell where one begins and the other ends. Yes, And I I see that dynamic, too, where because they feel they're always in crisis, it's very difficult for that child to go through the reg, regular, like, developmental stages of kind of, you know, exploring their world and coming back to their safe place.
2: Right, have a mother so overprotective mm-hmm. um, in many ways because she's so fearful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And with Alex in that beginning part of the series, you know, he does successfully take her away from her in the beginning. And so then she gets her back and she's in her careful time. And it's like, you know, she just can't even breathe out without worrying that that child is 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 going to go away again.
2: She's looking over her shoulder, like you said earlier, for the other shoe to drop, you know, the whole time, the whole rest of the series until the end.
0: Yeah. And I think that oftentimes in that situation, the mom is trying to counteract how the dad is. And so they're like extra, you know, affectionate and, you know, keep them so close and maybe don't have, I don't want to say boundaries, but it just means like space and and allow autonomy because it doesn't feel safe enough to. And then they're trying to sort of make up for the abuse of the of the co-parent. You know, I see that a lot with parents who are divorced, their kid goes to dad's house, they feel that dad is neglectful, too physical with the kids, dismissive, raising his voice, frightening, and then they come back to the safe place of mom's house and mom struggles to have discipline because she feels like these like she needs to go overboard with emotional responsiveness because the kids come back and they're kind of shell-shocked and i can totally understand how that happens
2: right and then she she's reacting right and so she may look kind of cuckoo mm-hmm. and so then he says well look how cuckoo she is
0: yeah she won't even leave her with a babysitter
2: right she's smothering the child
0: she's just so controlling
2: mm, that's another one
0: yeah so okay I'm going to look back at the post-separation abuse. What do you think, Anna? Is there any questions you have? I know we're kind of talking and talking. Uh,
1: I don't think so. I feel like you guys have talked a lot more outside of the neglectful
0: and abusive part. We're not staying on track is what you're saying? Yeah. This isn't enough structure for you? <laughs> <laughs> so the next one, like the third piece of the pie is called coercive control. And so this is creating a sense of fear that pervades all elements of the safe parent's life. Consistently belittles, undermines, shames, criticizes the safe parent, manipulates family and friends or the community into conflict with the safe parent to remain in control and gain advantage. So the word here is triangulation. I don't want to get too bogged down in the terminology and can impose a false narrative to make the safe parent doubt their reality. I mean, we've actually talked quite a bit about this very piece of pie. Would you agree?
2: We just haven't called it that.
0: Mm hmm. I do feel in the, in the show made Alex was a confident parent. Like she did not express self-doubt to me felt, seemed to be very strong in her convictions that she was doing the right thing. She's the best parent for Maddie. I mean, there's definitely times where she struggles to like, she has that abusive profile. Like the example that I was reading today was she goes into the store that is available on site at the DP shelter And the woman who's like the store employee asks her, well, what's your favorite color? And it's like, she doesn't even know.
2: Yeah. It's like she's lost herself in this parenting. So yeah. So she sees herself as Maddie's mom, right? And that's what she does well. And it may be the only thing she does well. She failed at going back to school. You know, I mean, in her mind, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing you're right. That's one thing that she knows she does well, but she's lost herself
0: in it. Yeah. And she's just being bombarded by Sean demanding that he have access to the child. And when Maddie was in the care of Sean and his mother was helping him with childcare, and she was trying to go out and get a job and earn money and be able to present as being stable to the court so she could have Maddie back. But she has to separate from her child, like stop being a mother for a little bit to concentrate on being able to provide housing and food for the child. And she, you know, she obviously is a competent, hardworking person, but man, that had to be. You
2: know, one thing I do want to say is that Sean is not like the most controlling abuser I've seen. There are things that are much worse. And I think he's too much of a chaotic mess because of the drinking to have been more controlling right? Because he doesn't have enough control over his own life when he's, when he's drinking. And I think he recognizes that at one point. So there are some, some abusers who are a lot more controlling than Sean is. And those may actually be your more dangerous abuser because he's more cunning. Sean is reacting. To his own pain more than he is actually cunning and purposefully trying to cause her
0: pain. Does that make sense? I agree. I have had that thought because I, and I think when I was watching the show and he started like being nice again, like I was starting to get pulled into that. Like, well, maybe he is a good guy because a lot of times when I see women go back to men or sort of reevaluate whether separation is like necessary. Yeah. One of the things that really compels them to persist with separation is the fact that he's always messing with her. You know, like, well, my phone is randomly going on and off.
2: Yeah. It's like his whole life is centered around getting back at her Mm -hmm. or getting to her.
0: Yeah. So I think that in this, like, you don't see him stalking her. He doesn't put a PI out on her. He's not asking her prying questions about, you know, her love life. I know he was jealous of her friend that other handsome guy that she, that lends her the car, but he, he, he didn't go into like that, like psychotic rage. Like you had mentioned last time. He's not a
2: sociopath.
0: Right. He's not.
2: A lot of people want to think that abusers are sociopaths or my, my biggest pet peeve that they're narcissists, right? He's neither of those. He's a big old middle school drunk boy. Who's Mm -hmm. never really matured because he handles his pain with alcohol. And, you know, I don't think he's evil. I don't think he's a monster. And we may get some pushback for me saying that, but he's definitely an abuser. But again, that part was never really dealt with in the series.
0: Yeah. Well, the end of the series, it culminates in her being able to take Maddie across state lines and go in honor of the, what am I trying to think of? The scholarship, scholarship yeah, yeah. She got a full scholarship in a writing program, and he does give consent to me. And I know this story is based on a person's real story, so it's not like they're necessarily going to finesse it just, you know, right. to make me Tara Egan happier with how realistic <laughs> it is.
2: <You> know? <laughs> yeah, might send him to a program like mine, like Impact, right? Yeah, <laughs> just to make me happy.
0: But they sort of presented as a moment of growth for him. He he allows her to take Maddie, like with his wife, I felt sort of like his blessing to say, go take her, make a better life for yourself, which has not been my experience with abusers. Like,
2: yeah, there was a little bit of a happy ending on there. And I think they had to just wrap it up that way. But that's not the way it works out. Frequently, what you and I both see is these matters going through the courts for years. Yeah. With the abuser still, you know, continuing to try to wrestle custody. Some, And very often they're going for full custody of children they've never even diapered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this abuse wheel last night, you know, preparing for today. And I was thinking, like, I could see somebody wondering, OK, well, what time frame is this? Is post separation mean the first three months, the first two oh, weeks, the first year? Good, And question. I see there's people who are actively in this cycle yes and it's 10 years yes you know and where they have a partner who is still controlling by focusing on denying the kid medical services you know they want to have their kid get assessment for ADHD and the dad is, you know, messing up that process and, you know, or alienating the kids' teachers or just whatever, trying to interfere in her finances. Or I have a question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, with abusers, are they more, like, when they want to try to get back their kids, or, like, is the meaning behind it to try to get back to their kids because they love them and they miss them when they're their father? Or is it to, like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. piss
0: off mom? Most them off? of the
2: time, it's because the children belong to him.
0: Their property yeah. that she has taken yeah. from him.
2: She so it's like from a spite him. thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's very often it's a spite thing. It's to hurt her, and to you know to continue to try to control her. Because a lot of times the reasons victims may not leave is because he's told them, "Fine, you go on and go, but you're not taking the children." Mm-hmm. And so I have seen cases where men present as single parents and say that the mother abandoned, but I find out later he drove her away at gunpoint and threatened her and told her if she ever came back, that he would kill the children. Mm -hmm. But he presents to the community as this guy who has raised these children single-handedly because their mother has abandoned them. And what does that do for the kids? Can you imagine having to deal with, you know, your mother just disappeared one day and never came back?
0: Or she does come back, but the parent is saying, you know, she doesn't even like you. Mm-hmm. She hates having to, to be with you. Who so, knows when she take off again. Mm-hmm. She thinks that you having to do homework with you is horrible. She thinks you're disgusting because you have, you know, acne or, you know, whatever it is, insert anything. And they will do. And that, I mean, that's actual real alienation right there. But oftentimes that's where they get their power. And so. I do want to say, I don't think that all abusive men don't love their children. Right. Like I think Sean really loved Maddie. And I think there's a lot of dads who love their kids, but they're either the hate for the mother will overpower them being able to make child focused decisions. Like B says, they think of them as property that like these kids are mine. They're my children. And there can be a huge disruption in that dynamic when the child gets old enough to choose not to be with the dad. So like they'll spend, you know, maybe a lifetime trying to get the kids from mom. The kid gets old enough and either it's a natural separation, like they went to college or they're just, you know, they've got their own life with their friends and they don't want to come over all the time, whatever it is. And that can be a very big slap in the face.
2: The abuser, the dad is never going to acknowledge that. You know, no matter what we say and what we see, he's not going to acknowledge that he's trying to get custody of the children from her because he wants to hurt her or because he wants to control the children or because he wants to pay less child support or no child support. You're never going to convince anybody of that because they do believe that they love their children. And so then any doubt that's cast on that is seen as an attack. And you can't disprove that.
0: Yeah, it's not like you can give them a blood test to see what their
2: right. it's levels a, of
0: love for their do children. Do you really
2: is. love your children? Do you really want what's best for them, or are you just being a jerk here?
0: Mm-hmm. So it's 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 tough. It's tough dynamic. Some of these other things here in the wheel we've talked about: spreading lies and rumors to family, friends, and teachers to discredit the safe parent. So this might be, they'll say, oh, mom never does homework with him or he, you know, she, she doesn't give him his medication. They'll oftentimes tell other people that the mom is doing exactly the same thing they're doing. And I always get so mystified by that. Like you're telling the mom that she doesn't provide appropriate medical care for the kids. Oh, but when we actually see the text messages and shows you you know, enraged when mom wants to take kid to urgent care or denying the kids need to see a therapist or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, and I honestly don't think these abusers, like, I don't think they're trying to gaslight me. Like I think they have creative story in their mind.
2: And, and I want to say too, that when they come to me and very often they come to me after a separation. Right. And, and I take, guys who are self-referred as well as guys who come from the courts. But when they come to me, they honestly believe themselves to be victims. And that is because they are hurting. They are in pain, whatever has caused that pain, whether it's um, financial pain, whether it's the pain of loss of this relationship, a taint on their image, whatever that pain is, they are in pain. So therefore, if they're in pain, then somebody else must have caused that pain and it must be her. So therefore, they're the victim. Mm
0: -hmm. You see? Yeah. And their life is often disrupted. Absolutely. You know, when she leaves, you know, there's no one oh,
2: to- or if he's gone to jail. Oh, my goodness. And that's the first time he's ever, ever been
0: arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's public. You know, if we have um, families that are from maybe a higher socioeconomic bracket and mom has, you know, started to be more verbal about things or it starts to become known in their friend group that mom left dad and they're, you know, she can't get back into the house to get her own underwear. And, you know, there's just a lot of like public embarrassment that can happen.
2: Their church, their pastor knows what's going on now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this next one really speaks to me in that they can oftentimes it's called harassment and stalking. So we have just to kind of review, we have alienation, allegations, neglectful or abusive parenting, coercive control. We have isolation and we have. Harassment and stalking. So, this is where they might bombard the parent with emails and phone calls and threatening language, or abusive messages. They might monitor their whereabouts, be looking at their social interactions, try to sneak into their social media, their devices like their cell phones, use spyware. They will oftentimes use threats without rising to the level of needing law enforcement. So, I've had Okay, well, he is supposed to pick up the kids at five and he parks his car around the corner. So, where she can see the car, but he's not actually even on her street. And so now she doesn't want to play with the kids out in the front yard, or he's having her followed, or he is systematically closing all their joint accounts. Or so now she has to pay the late fee to turn the water back on.
2: Right. And she um, and I want to say, too, that in many cases, the mom may be at home taking care of the children and may not be employed or may be underemployed. And so she has fewer access to financial resources in some cases um, to be able to fight these these public, very uh, toxic court battles.
0: Yeah, there's a real safety issue there as far as being able to manage day to day living.
2: Yes. And I want to say, too, that um, January is Stalking Awareness Month. And so um, I'm glad that, you know, this this topic is is in there because that can happen when a victim leaves an abuser. He didn't have to stalk her when she lived there. Right. So she may not see it coming, but he may start stalking her after she leaves.
0: Yeah. Well, there can be, you know, recording devices put in the house.
2: I've had that happen.
0: Private investigators. trackers
2: on in her. car. Yep. Mm-hmm. And also interference with her job, harassing her or stalking her even at work because he knows where she's going to be. And so that's a, an easy place to go. So, you know, if you've got a friend whose husband picks her up and uh, drops her off every day, takes her out to lunch and calls her multiple times at work throughout the day. That may not be a loving, close relationship, right? They, that may actually be him uh, keeping very close reins on her.
0: I have a friend who has, and who's a supervisor at a, at, a, at their job. And there is a woman, both partners work for this company and he has insisted that all their shifts be scheduled together.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: So, and you know, the supervisor has said like we can't do that. Like we can't guarantee that you can always be in the same shift. And so the 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 man quit for them both. He had oh. them both resign.
2: So, take this job and shove it.
0: Mhm. If you're not going to put me and my partner together, so I'm sure there's I, there's definitely something Shady there, you know. Yeah, I had
2: a case one time where they both worked for the same place and he worked in the communications center that was assigning the uh the job duties and placements. And so he would make sure that she was always assigned where she would be reporting through him. Oh. nice, huh? Yeah. He also had cameras all over the house and would move them around so she never knew where they were.
0: Wow. Jeez. That gives me chills. Hmm. All right. Next one is legal abuse, which you had mentioned earlier on in the podcast about misusing court proceedings to control, harass, intimidate, coerce, exhaust the financial and emotional resources of the safe parent. So these are parents who disregard court orders, will make false reports, will deliberately cause delays in court proceedings. They'll make legal threats to assert power and control over the safe parent. They'll seek a change in custody only as a means of revenge, punishment, and continued control over the safe parent. I see this all the time. I see where dads...
2: All the time.
0: It's so disgusting when the lawyers participate in it too.
2: Yeah, and I've got a big problem with that. Do you think that the lawyers understand their role in causing harm, potentially lethal harm, to victims by participating in the abuser's attempts to go after her to cause her as much harm as possible?
0: I think some of them do. Oh,
2: that's so sad to me.
0: I mean, I don't think often, I do think most lawyers, at least the ones I've come into contact with over the years, do have a sense of wanting to be like a helper in the community. Like they, they identify with that role, but I think there's times where they will be sucked into this manipulative person's whole situation and they will, you know, believe what they're saying and they will. Remember the other day, B, you posted something on Facebook about that was posted by an attorney who was very disparaging over women.
2: Yes. And was quoting some BS um, article that's not even a real thing. What I see is oftentimes guys come to me because they're newly separated or because there's a threat of separation. And then when the separation does happen and they're in my program, I'm trying to keep things from escalating, right? During this separation because of all the stuff on this wheel, right? So I'm trying to work with him and I'm trying to tell him, you know, not to go for her throat in this separation. But he's in so much pain and, and it's like immediately he'll go to an attorney who says, well, we're, we've we got to be proactive here. We've got to go on the offensive and we're going to go after her for a lot more than we'll eventually settle for, because that's the way the game is played. So we're going to go after full custody of the children. Mm hmm. And they do that, and they're egging these clients on, and the whole mentality then becomes, get her before she gets you. Meantime, she's like, I want to cause the least harm to him possible. I want him to be a parent. I want him to be a father to his children. I don't want to take him from his children. And he's over here with his lawyer going, go for the throat.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen him where they're pulling an email sent to a friend from 14 years ago in which she said she was feeling depressed. She's mentally ill. Yes, she's mentally ill. You know, she because she can't afford as much as I can, therefore she's providing them with a substandard, you know, living circumstances. And as a parent who's always been the less wealthy parent in the co-parenting relationship, I can tell you that caused me Many, many sleepless nights, even though my kids have always been in very nice, like, you know, cute little townhouses that are in safe neighborhoods and they have their I a
2: spring coat defense many years ago when I worked for DSS and uh, I was in court and the judge was deciding whether or not to return children to their parent. The allegation was that one parent couldn't afford spring coats for the children.
0: And I'm like, what
2: the heck is a spring coat?
0: Yeah, especially here.
2: Right. Especially here. What that what is a spring coat and why why is a spring coat like essential and, and a parent neglectful if they can't buy between season outerwear? Yeah.
0: Well, I've I've heard, you know, because you buy your kids clothes at Walmart and Target and I can buy their clothes at Macy's or wherever, you know, therefore they should live with me. And I'm like, that's complete bullshit
2: or I could take them to Disney. I can take them on vacation. Yeah. I yeah. could put them in a private school. Well, dude, you can put them in a private school while they're with
0: her too. Mm-hmm. That's totally accessible. You can also, if you have visitation time at all, take them to Disney. You don't need to have full custody to do that. You need seven days. Gonna, that Disney dad. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. So there's a lot of legal abuse.
2: I've seen a lot of this, and so I'm glad that, that we focused on this, and I can't really bring enough attention to this. I know we've got to move on, but I really want to ask the audience to pay attention to, to this. I don't have a solution for it, though. I don't know what to do about the lawyers who like egg these clients on. I don't know what to do about courts that allow this to
0: happen. Well, you were talking when we spoke the other day about a case, I want to say it was California, where they called it litigation abuse. Wasn't she the lawyer helping the mom-
2: I, I don't know yet what's going on in that case. I think that there is going to be more focus on this. And I am working with some um, people, especially some folks out of Texas, who do great conferences and who are thinking about doing a conference or at least part of a conference on this specific topic. And she's a, a an attorney herself. And so I, I do think that we need to train attorneys more because... What is it that they really want for the person they're representing, which let's talk about abusers, right? They're representing an abuser. What is it that they really want? Don't they really want what's best for the abuser and for the or the father and the children? Or do they just want as much as they can steal from the mother?
0: Well, I think that there can be the mentality of like, this is my client and I'm here to help them win regardless of what is in the best interest. I do have to say, though, on many occasions, I've seen lawyers who are um, representing the dad put the brakes on his like insistence on having access. Ooh,
2: they deserve yes. rewards, right? We yeah. need to find a way to reward the lawyers that do the right thing
0: for, the, for him and his mm-hmm. kids. I've seen it a couple of times. And not to it anti him. Where that is helpful, I'll tell you just a little bit is, so when I, as as a therapist, and I obviously work extensively with this population, there's times when it comes down, I hear through the grapevine that I'm going to be subpoenaed to testify at some point. And so one of the things that I will do with both parents signing consent and like everybody being in agreement is that I will have a meeting with both lawyers at the same time. So it's me and the two lawyers and I just answer their questions. I don't like offer a presentation of the kid's business or anything like that, but in it, and I'm not making custody recommendations, but I'm saying, you know, kind of, these are their referral questions. This is how the parents, what suggestions and recommendations have been given to the parents. This is how I see compliance has been with these recommendations These are the areas of concern I have for the children's well-being. So that in when they're both in the same room, they're both hearing the same answers and they can't like just turn around and twist it because they know the other lawyer heard it, then oftentimes they can sort of see the writing on the wall if there's a parent who needs to make some changes. And it could be something small, like, you know, you're getting the the kid, this isn't small, but something like really concrete, like get your kid to school on time. Like either you do that or you don't. Or it could be something that's more nuanced, like how are you disciplining? Are you disciplining with fear and shame? Are you disciplining with appropriate parenting strategies? Like that's talked about. And because both of them are hearing it at the same time, and then I often reiterate, I say, to summarize, this is the places that I've indicated concern. This is the places I feel that we still need to work on. And so oftentimes that just keeps the lawyer from spinning, spinning, spinning. And I can't guarantee it's going to work all the time or it has worked all the time. But I found that to be really helpful.
2: That's wonderful. Yeah. We've got to do things differently because this is just, it is not working for kiddos. You know, it's the kids that suffer.
0: It is. It is. And, and, and everybody should have the same goal of having the parents have healthy relationships with their kids. And for some people, that healthy relationship might mean less than 50% of the time or honestly it could even mean no time if the the one parent is just too unhealthy that might be the healthiest version we can get but i would rather focus on like what do we need to do to keep these kids safe and even if it's a modification of their contact with their parent you know even if they do have to have a disney dad where that dad picks them up and takes them to the movie and they get some lunch and then he brings them back to mom and it feels good and it feels safe and he gets to ask about school but he's not trying to get the naughty five-year-old to go to bed and get up for school the next day and get through math homework and deal with his little friends and stuff like that. Like maybe they're not equipped to do that.
2: Or maybe he's, uh, he doesn't do diapers. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't keep them overnight or longer until they're older. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or maybe he drinks every night. And so, you know what, do your visitation on Saturday from 10 to two, you know? So I think, I wish that our focus in the legal system would be that of like how can we make this manageable so that parents can have healthy contact with their kids versus defining it as having to be in this you know whatever 50 50 and it needs to include overnights and dad needs to have complete access to all the teachers and and you know be second guessing what you know every time mom wants to reconsider having a tutor for math or something like that i just i don't don't know why we need to be in that space.
2: Well, and let me throw this in there too. Sometimes the, the father, the abusive father will use my program in an effort to try to get more, to win. Right. And and I may I may know that's going on, but have no real reason to, like, stop him from participating. And so I do want to tell these moms out there that this is just a tool. In North Carolina, we're called DV intervention programs, DVIPs. Over the rest of the world, we tend to be called BIPs, battering intervention programs, that we are one tool. Right? We are not the end all and be all, but we are the best that the community has to offer for abusers who want to stop abusing. Okay? So they can try to use the program to try to, you know, get more, to win more in custody court. And it may work. But it's their long-term behavior that's going to show whether or not they've really made changes. And they also have to be rooted in some way to continue doing their work. So my program is a minimum of 26 weekly groups, and they have to attend the whole program in order to get any credit at all. But they can also attend longer. And then we also have programs after they're completed where they can continue to work on themselves because this is a process of lifelong change and they're just at the beginning. And if they truly, truly do love their children, then they will continue to work to be the best fathers possible. And that includes not abusing the mother.
0: Do you think it's helpful sometimes for these abusers to fake it till they make it where they initially Uh, go in? Absolutely. I agree. I think there's times where parents, a mother will say to me, like, he's only coming to co-parenting counseling because he wants to look good. And I'm like, I, that might be what got him here. Do you think that
1: the character in me did that? Well, he did not participate in any intervention. Nobody ever
2: mentioned this kind of program at Mm -hmm. all for him. Nobody really ever mentioned that there was any help or that he needed to get any help for being abusive. Mm -hmm. I think it was just somehow understood that if he got sober, all of a sudden he wouldn't be abusive anymore.
0: But they are part of a population that... They're they're poor. He lived in a you know a trailer, yes. and you know she struggles with poverty, chronic poverty throughout the whole thing. I mean, and by poverty I mean when she left that first night, she had eighteen dollars in a bank account. And on the screen, when you're watching the show, there's like a little ticker, and it shows okay she spent three seventy five on a gas, budget. right, right, and it like adds it, and then like let's say she did a cleaning job and she got you know forty dollars. And so, and then it would show it, go up $40 and it didn't do it in every episode, but it was shocking to see.
2: Impactful. That was very, very good. And I do want to point out too, that she had certain advantages that people of color, that women of color who were victims may not have had. And of course, the story, the storyline is based on the author of the book's story. And uh, and so, we, you know, we can't change her story. But I do want to point out that as hard as she had it, that many women of color would have had it a whole lot harder.
0: Mm-hmm. She was young. She was attractive. She was smart. She was, you know, generally healthy. mentally healthy, yes. physically healthy. Mm-hmm. Her child was healthy. Right. She had a lot of places of strength. She eventually gets a job cleaning and being a cleaning person, a housekeeper. And so she's physically capable of dragging this big vacuum up and down these stairs and working nonstop for hours at a time. You know, like she's just in a space, whereas let's say she was 45 and not that 45 year olds can't her clean bad houses. Is like someone, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like when she left, she hadn't had her glasses with her. Or her medicine, or you know whatever it is. Like she, you know, that's one thing. Like there isn't a lot of medical care that she needs. You know what I mean? She's not trying to fill a lot of prescriptions, right. things like yeah, that.
2: Yeah, those advantages as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I hate to, to point them out as advantages because I mean, this was horrible, right? Yeah. It was absolutely terrible to see her go through this. So, but can you imagine that it might be even more terrible?
0: Yeah, I felt very despairing watching the show. When very early on, she gets into a car accident and her car is totaled. And she had this, you know, this huge representation of freedom. She had a cell phone, she had her $18. She had her car with a car seat. And then the car gets, you know, she gets into an accident. The car is ruined. She ends up having to call her biological dad to pick her and Maddie up. And he drops her off at the at the ferry, right? And she spends the night with Maddie. On the, the floor. floor. Yeah. yeah. And and just with this pile of stuff and the stupid vacuum that she had been given by the cleaning lady telling her that she could go to this job. And so I thought, like, I don't even when I watched the show, like I watched that episode, and then I really struggled to come back to the show. And honestly, it was you B who kind of were like, Hey, let's do this, let's do this, you know, project together that really motivated me to go back and keep going. Cause I just felt so defeated for her. To not have transportation and not have money to acquire it.
2: And housing. Yeah. Housing became a huge issue, right? And then she ended up in, um, in a place where that got black mold.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and her kid was getting sick.
2: And her kid was very sick. And then there was the school issue. In order to get her into a decent school, she had to try to find housing in that area. And guess what? The better schools are in the richer
0: areas. So she's trying to use somebody else's address. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, she finally finds housing in like this one couple's like kind of guest house that they were going to rent out. And then it's her daughter's birthday and Sean comes over and it's two partying and they kick her out yep. so like it looked so hopeful like these nice ladies were totally
2: and then he shows his butt and yeah he gets drunk and yep
0: yeah so there's things like that like do i think he went over there to tank her housing i don't but do i think he felt the same sense of protectiveness over his daughter to make sure she had safe housing i do not That So that legal abuse, like I do think this piece of pie, like I wish this could be like highlighted in bigger letters to say, because I think it happens so frequently related to that is the financial abuse where dads or, you know, abusers will block access to bank accounts and other financial resources. They'll jeopardize job interviews, employment, career advancement, withholds or mismanages support payments and court ordered reimbursements. So I knew somebody once who they had a job where they had to have appointments. And so the mom would make appointments at a time that was like, like he was supposed to get the kids at four and she would make her appointment for like, you know, 430. Mm -hmm. So she'd be, you know, dressed professionally out there, you know, totally having the kids ready. And he knew she did this and he would come late Mm -hmm. just to F with her appointments.
2: Yeah. I had one who punctured the tires of her car so she couldn't go to work and then called her lazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Or blocks the car in the driveway somehow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that or has her car towed, things like that to sabotage, you know, like right. I said, going in and closing the accounts on the utilities. And then she doesn't have the credit to get them turned back on, or doesn't have the spare fifty dollars. All sorts of stuff. I mean, we could go on and on. Financial abuse is 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 very scary.
2: And and many of my guys, especially the ones who have more financial means, uh, will acknowledge using financial abuse in the relationships, and then after the separation as well. In fact, that may be the number one thing that they will admit to.
0: Hmm. Well, and, and then when you include lawyers in it and you have somebody who has the pockets that are deep enough to continue the legal fight, yep. you know, and if you're a lawyer, are you like, all right, you're abusing this woman because you have deeper pockets and I'm going to turn away this business. They're going to take their business to somebody else. Yeah. So it's, they're not going to stop doing, it's just not going to be you that's paid. And then the last section of the pie is called counter parenting. And this is when they undermine the safe parents, parenting abilities and decisions they deny or withhold consent or care for the child's medical or therapeutic needs. So I've mentioned this. Seeks to impose opposing values in the child, despite the safe parent.
2: Yeah, that's turning the kid uh, around. Like, like, say the mother practices one faith, and the children practice that with her. He'll, you know, he may disparage. That religion or faith, or take them to something else. But the consent for medical and therapeutic needs, that's all about control there. Mm -hmm. And even like not consenting to the parent taking a child out of state, to the safe parent taking the child out of state, or something like that to visit relatives or to go on vacation. Um, Those, that's all absolutely designed to cause disruption, chaos, and pain. Mm
0: -hmm. One of the things I see you might not think of is um, teenagers with technology. So let's say mom has some rules around it, you know, like you can't be on Snapchat all night or the phone needs to be turned in at nine o'clock or whatever. You can't play violent video games when you're eight years old And then that dad will undermine that and tell them, you know, the kids, like, your mom's being crazy. You guys do a great job with this. Like, why is she so uptight? And so, since most kids want to play video games and have access to their technology, so this is what that's what came to mind when it's imposing opposing values to the child, right? Is, you know, and if you go to a court, the court thinks that parents have the right to make the decisions about their kids' technology, which I actually do agree with. Mm -hmm. But when we have a parent who is, you know, disregarding the other parents rules around this that were designed to be protective. And maybe they are the parent who sees, you know, who's monitoring the phone or sees the the drama from their middle schooler or sees their kid get aggressive and irritable because they've been on video games for hours, whatever it is like, that's a, it, it feels like a small thing, but it's actually a really big thing.
2: It is a big thing. It's doing things deliberately to get to that other parent you know to to just disrupt to me i mean what a jerk yeah jerk who does that
0: mm-hmm. yeah so that's we have to actually touched upon all the pieces of the post separation abuse wheel i do want to just kind of ask you B, when you think about the the mini series and we've pointed out some places that we see sort of contradict you know her experience you know just Not that her experience is invalid, but just we see differences. Is there anything about the series that you want to add any additional commentary about it, maybe not resembling your client's circumstances or something that maybe it didn't tackle?
2: Um, Well, you know, like I said, um, it doesn't represent the experiences of of women of color and, of course, a, a lot of other things. One thing that I think it does really well, and I said this at the beginning and I'll say it again, is it points out that it doesn't have to be a physical assault, a beating for it to be domestic violence and for it to have all these far-reaching repercussions, this impact on this whole family and everybody around them. And so I think it does a really good job of explaining to the community uh, the different kinds of abuse and the fact that, yes, it is still abuse, even though he didn't cut you with the glass that broke. Mm -hmm. It's still abuse and that people have to take accountability for it. So the part that's missing is him taking accountability, okay? And so he was never held accountable for the abuse. He was never offered help. And there is help for abusers, which is, you know, why I'm here. And so I think that if people know that there's help, they may feel less helpless. And and I think that some abusers will recognize themselves in this series and will they reach out for help for themselves probably not because the series fails to hold that that help and that hope out to them and like I said at the end it wrapped it up with a nice bow and that was very unrealistic like you said, it's it's not very often that abusers will say, OK, I give up. You can have custody of the child and I'm just going to go work on myself here. But part of the work on himself did not include working on himself as a person who chose to abuse her. And the, that is a choice. And uh, people will ask me, well, why do men abuse? Why do people abuse? And I tell them it's all about entitlement. It's whatever they felt was their reason for being righteous in abusing. And there is help. You know, my hashtag is only abusers can stop abuse. And that's the truth. With victims, you know, our services are essential for victims. And as you can see from this series, very insufficient, right? We don't have the amount of services we need for survivors and and victims leaving relationships. But we also need to understand that we all have to work together. So anytime there's a discussion about what services a community needs, you need to have people who work with the abusers at the table in those discussions.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that you pointing out these services and I think of how Alex was, she was smart and she was organized, you know, and you see her in multiple scenes, you know, filling out forms and going back and turning in this form. And You know, she has that initial conversation with the social worker that she comes across when she goes to try to find housing. And she's the one that social worker who says you are a victim of abuse. And she's like, but he's never hit me. And so this social worker has this very blunt. It's not particularly therapeutic or nurturing, but just a very blunt, like, you know, you fit in this category and, you know, what can you qualify as far as resources? And there was these, you know, some of these resources are just out of reach. You just don't have quite the conditions right. that you need in order to get this financial support or whatever it is. And that was frustrating to watch, certainly. But I think, OK, Alex had the cognitive resources to navigate it.
2: Yeah. She also didn't need parenting classes that she was forced to go to in order to try to get housing. She didn't need parenting classes. That was a waste of her time. So what she was trying to do is fill out other paperwork for other stuff while she was in those parenting classes. And so some of it's just BS. You know, we need to really think about, you know, what people need and what will will benefit them before we just do, do rubber stamping.
0: Yeah. And I I thought too, when we were when I was watching the series, you know, Maddie is this, you know, two turning three year old. She's healthy, she's adorable they speak of how she's like gifted in art and you know her grandmother Anna McDowell plays an artist in the in the film or in the in the series and it's just filled with creative energy and you know you don't she doesn't have chronic health conditions you don't see her as having developmental delays or learning issues she's well behaved she's responsive to her mother and i thought for me that to me felt a little unrealistic to think that this kid didn't have like a trauma response you know we talk about I mentioned this earlier, like these kids have oftentimes like, like their development is is stunted or is modified because of being exposed to this degree of chaos in their home. And, you know, she presents as this kid who walks into preschool and, you know, like you never hear about her biting the other kid or having meltdowns or or hiding in the corner, you know, or, you know, regressing in her potty training or, you know, having a, a hypersensitive Diet or anything like that, and so that to me, when I was watching it, I felt was probably not representative of most women's experience.
2: Right, I do think uh, too, though, that um, Andy McDowell's portrayal of a of someone who suffers with mental illness was dead on, Mm -hmm. and I do hope she'll get an Emmy for that. I think it was wonderful, but also I like that she was shown to be loving, shown to be somebody who. Loved but couldn't parent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that sometimes we see that with our abusive fathers, our abusive parents. Maybe they do love the kids, but maybe they're not the best thing for the
0: kids. Well, I thought that Annie McDowell's character, Paula, like she added value to Alex's life and Maddie's life. Like she wasn't stable you know, she wasn't healthy, Hot mess. she, you know, sometimes we think of these, you know, cause she kind of flirted with homelessness and, you know, very financially unstable, very like naive as far as she would get with a partner who would take advantage of her. And I think sometimes we paint these people as though they're, they're valueless and, you know, like, why didn't you just walk away from her? And, but you could see like this woman, she had a light to her. She had an energy to her. She had a loving spirit, you know, all of that. Like you could, I, I, There was likability. There was, I could see why.
2: And you could see why Alex was a loving person herself. I mean, she did get that from her mother.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could see why Alex was invested in the mom. And so it wasn't a clear cut thing to say, why don't you just walk away from that mess?
2: Well, and you know, one thing that was missing was a good man in this series. They started out with the
0: friend, remember? Yeah, we it yeah. had hope for him. The
2: beginning, and then there was the dad. We had hope for mm-hmm. him, too. Uh, but no, there wasn't a single really good man in the whole series. I just thought about that.
0: There's a lot of women, though, who don't have a single good man in their life.
2: That's true. And that's where it's realistic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. What a downer. What a downer way to end.
2: I'm sorry. Come on. Let's think of something else. We we we, we did Annie McDowell and how awesome she was. And now we get to. Sorry, I'm a Debbie. Right. Sorry,
0: men suck. That's what yeah, you're ending suck. this on.
2: <laughs> I do not want people to think that I think that all men are abusers or that no. men suck in general. No. I think that there is the potential for everybody to be a good parent, but people need to recognize when they're not
0: hmm What do you think, Anna? A lot of information. Did you learn anything? I did. I learned a lot. What is your, what is the one takeaway?
1: That all met no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. Well, that may be the safest one for you for now, Anna. <laughs> yeah. <All right.
1: laughs> yeah. But just all the different ways that abuse can take a toll on someone and how it can impact different people. And I don't know the different resources that there are and the different causes
0: and I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah, it really is. A lot of times people who are living in safety and they hear about something, they're like, Why does she just leave him? Mm. And that's it to them, like that's just the solution to all of it. I mean, and it's the same yeah. with like homeless people. Why don't you just get a house? Yeah. Like
1: yeah.
2: you know, I do a simple exercise Anna, and and this might might be kind of interesting for you to do. When I do training, I'll often put two columns on a board and I'll say leaves and stays. And I'll say, okay, what might happen to the victim of domestic violence who has children if she stays in the relationship? And we list all the different things that might happen. And then what might happen if she leaves the relationship? That list is a lot longer and a lot more dangerous. I mean, who would, who wants to go to a shelter?
1: Right. Right?
2: Who wants to leave their school, their job, their neighborhood, their church, their friends, their family, and not know where their abuser is, mm-hmm. you know? And so doing that little exercise with anybody who questions why victims don't leave can be really helpful.
0: Mm, that's a really good point, but mm-hmm. I think most people wouldn't even think there's anything on the list that would be super negative, you know, like how, how could it not be better for you to leave a home where someone's hitting you? Right. And I think being able to, to really establish like a more empathic mindset for other people would be, would be really helpful. All right. I feel a little worn out. Yeah. It's a lot of words.
1: I'm going to eat a
2: cookie now.
0: Yeah, huh? I, know I made you, cookies. You did make cookies too. Oh, where are mine? Well, when you got your blueberry <laughs> tea.
2: I'll do puppies. I'll do <laughs> puppies while you eat cookies. <laughs> Sounds good.
0: <laughs> well, I do want to thank you, B, for being with us again today. I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I hope that listeners out there are listening to the whole thing and that it didn't get too kind of convoluted. I do encourage people out there to check out the Netflix miniseries called Made. And, you know, if you're watching it, pull up this post separation abuse wheel and just look at it and see if you can detect some of these details and then think about in relation to your own relationships or those of your friends or your kids and their partners, because whatever we can do to make people be educated on these dynamics, like that is essential when it comes to changing them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And always, always safety first.
0: Yeah, you got to create that plan to be physically safe, mentally safe. You know, you're not paranoid if you go and tell somebody, "I'm worried." That is something I hear moms say: "Of like, ah, this, you know, this feels off, or it feels like he's effing with me, and I don't have proof." And you know, I tell these moms, like, you trust that instinct, like,
2: absolutely. You know. And all all victim service providers will also serve victims of all kinds of abuse. So they don't have to be hit to be able to go and get free counseling in their communities uh, for victims of domestic violence. And that's what I would strongly recommend uh, seeking the advice and assistance of advocates in the community before going to therapy. Therapy is way down the road and not every therapist is knowledgeable about domestic violence.
0: Absolutely. Well, everyone out there, please tune in to episodes of One Day You'll Thank Me every Wednesday. We have a new episode come out and we really appreciate you listening. We appreciate you sharing episodes with friends or family who could benefit from this knowledge. And as always, you're welcome to visit my website at www.drterriegan.com. And B, tell us the website address of Impact LLC.
2: Impact is uh, www.impactdv for domesticviolence.org, impactdv.org. And then please, please consider donating or volunteering with my nonprofit that makes the program Impact possible for abusers who might not normally be able to financially afford to attend Impact. And that is www.stepuptofamilysafety.org.
0: All right. Thank you, B. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, Thanks thank
2: you so you. much for having me back. Thanks, All right. guys.
0: All right. Yeah. Have a great day.
2: You too. Bye bye.